There is what's fair to the, the trans women who are competing as well, right? Like, why should they have to give up sports? By the time we went home election night, uh, I was actually down for a while, but then I was up by about 10 or 15 votes. And we didn't really find out for about three weeks. And then when I finally won, I won by nine votes. So I gave myself the nickname, a landslide game. <laughs> he, he doesn't believe in the public sector. He doesn't believe in, in ideas that are just, you know, pretty common sense. Than and I like helping each other, that uh, we have a responsibility for those around us. And he doesn't believe in that. I've got a terrible manager. They're newish. They haven't taken the time to learn what my team does, brackets, I'm in sales, and has now announced a complete change in how we do things, which doesn't actually benefit the team at all. Do you have any advice on how to approach her about this? The advice I give writers is just, I didn't try to get it perfect right away. I wrote the pilot, like there were 18 drafts before I even went in to pitch it. Like your first, my first drafts are, they're bad. <laughs> like they're just bad writing. And then you try to get rid of the bad writing. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, this of course is Pride Month. So we start off with Pride at Work Executive Director Jeremy Davis on Yallcast, a podcast that looks at young active labor leaders, Y-A-L-L, y'all, get it, in the great state of Texas. Then the Talking Smart podcast talks with Matt Cherry and Dan O'Connell. Matt is a local 33 sheet metal member from Toledo, Ohio. He serves as the president of the Toledo City Council. Dan is a longtime member of the Smart Transportation Division, who served as New Jersey State Legislative Director for 20 years until his retirement in 2018. On the Canadian Union Podcast for Employees, Rory Gill, president of CUPE Alberta, discusses Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta and the leader of the United Conservative Party, who recently announced his intentions to step down. Next, we go to New Zealand, where Justine answers all your questions about bad managers, Christmas leave, and dreaded team bonding activities on the Red Dead Redemption podcast. We wrap up this week with the On Writing podcast chat with Amy Schumer, creator and star of the comedy drama series Life and Beth, with Amy's advice to writers, why she loves writing in bed, and the differences between writing a sketch show like Inside Amy Schumer versus a scripted show like Life and Beth. As always, you can find all these shows and, of course, the rest of the 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Y'all Cast. I am your host, Thomas Kennedy. I am the co-chair of the Austin the division of y'all, which is a division of the AFL, the Texas AFL-CIO. As if you're listening to us, y'all is a division of the AFL-CIO that specifically targets young, active labor leaders, the new generation. We, we've got an amazing guest on the show this week. 
We are so lucky to have our guest today, Jeremy Davis, the executive director of Pride at Work. Hey, how's it going, man? I'm great. How are you? Oh, man, I am filled with pride. I'm doing good, man. So on the trans aspect of it, the biggest thing in Texas is sports and trans sports and how they interact. Now, I was having a really great conversation with somebody about this, and it's hard on both sides. I see both sides of the argument in respect to I know many people that are on uh, hormone therapy. And it has done amazing things to their lives and it's done amazing things to who they are. And it's really affected how they just, how they love, love themselves. But for a trans woman, say somebody that's in the 17 to 18 range that is currently going on to, onto estrogen therapy and going into hormone therapy, those things take time. They're not a overnight transformation. They are a long period. So when somebody is going into that therapy and, and coming out of puberty and, and aligning with what they feel like is their sexuality, physically, they have had testosterone helping them throughout their entire pube- puberty. They are bigger. They are just naturally they're bigger. And then that person now wants to compete in the women's side of sports. And that seems a little unfair for the 17 year old girl who did not have that advantage of the testosterone for the last, let's call it five years of their development. What I understand the need to feel like you're accepted. And I understand the the need to feel to be comfortable in your own skin, but as a performance aspect of it, does that seem fair or how do you, what, what is your response to that? I have a few responses. The first one I would say is you're only hearing about the trans athletes who are winning. Yes. That's the problem. They're winning. Yeah. There are plenty of trans athletes who are not winning, who are not scoring higher, who are basically average. Part of it is that there are the few who are winning. And then when they're breaking records, it does become controversial. The question isn't necessarily a fair critique. And in some cases it is because when, you know, testing is done, those trans women have high levels of testosterone currently, but there are biological female women who also have high levels of testosterone. There was, and I'm trying to remember the story now, but I, there was recently a story about an athlete who biologically female at birth competing as a woman and her testosterone, natural testosterone levels were, were too high and they disqualified her. And that's, and that to me is of the bottom line is that a lot of sports, the Olympics, major international sporting authorities have standards for when and how trans people can compete. There's amount of time that you've been on hormone blockers to, and then, and then a specific level of testosterone that you're allowed to have in your system when you compete, like all of those things have been found to be fair 
and workable solutions on the national, international level, on the Olympic level, on most international competing levels. So why doesn't it work for our schools? There's, there is the argument like you were making that they are so close to puberty that they've had the advantage of the testosterone recently. I suppose an argument could be made for that, but I don't think that, that it's necessarily fair if the person is going through the, the hormone therapy that they need and their testosterone levels are testing below the levels that they should, then they should be allowed to compete. And that's that if they're winning, like, sure, we can look at the outlier cases where somebody is just blowing away all the records and everything else. And let's see what that means. But at the end of the day, we have to consider what's also there's what's fair to to the, the young girls who are competing, who are biologically female from birth. There is what's fair to the, the trans women who are competing as well, right? Like why should they have to give up sports? If, they're, if they were forced to compete with men, they would be at a, at a disadvantage. If they're, and if they're competing with women, maybe they have an advantage, maybe they don't. That's something that we can test for though. So to me, that's the right thing to do is to make sure that some of the amount of time on hormone blockers and all of that stuff has passed appropriately, whatever those standards are, but then testosterone levels can be tested and tested repeatedly. Okay. So you've been below this level of testosterone for six months. You should be clear to compete. We test athletes for all sorts of things for performance enhancing drugs, for drugs, for all sorts of stuff. There's no reason why we can't make the thank you, Jeremy, for coming on and teaching me about the current issues and enlightening my audience to to you and your program and your amazing work that y'all are doing it is truly the work of heroes. You you are making the world a better place, and that's all we can ask for. You're listening to Talking Smart. The official podcast of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. This is Paul Pimentel, and I'm joined today by my co-host Ben Nagy from Smart TD Communications and Michael Blaine from Smart Communications, who is producing this episode. Welcome to the 21st episode of Talking Smart. This episode, we sit down with Dan O'Connell, a longtime member of the Smart Transportation Division who served as New Jersey State Legislative Director for 20 years until his retirement in 2018. He also served as the Delran Councilman and Burlington County Freeholder. Dan has been a recognizable face across every part of our union as his formidable reputation in the New Jersey State House preceded him prior to his retirement. Dan, sir, welcome to the podcast, brother. Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you today. Well, thank you. And, you know, Dan, you've had just such a stellar career uh, in association with Smart Transportation Division, and you left it basically all on the table during your time serving as a union officer. What motivated you after all your distinguished career as a union officer 
to go ahead and run for local office after everything you had already accomplished? Well, actually, I, I got into local office shortly before I retired. Uh, people didn't know I was getting ready to retire. I hadn't made an announcement yet. But I live in a small town of about 15,000 people. And I thought maybe for the years working in Trenton and even in Washington, D.C., that it might be of some value. And it would be a way for me to give back to the, my hometown, Delray, New Jersey. And so uh, did you challenge an incumbent or was this a vacancy? No, that's an interesting question, Ben. It was an open seat and election night came and I was running with two other council persons. They were incumbents and they won handily because they were known in town. Uh, my opponent and I were not that well known. As a matter of fact, we didn't get the results that night for a variety of reasons. A vote by mail had started in New Jersey and that's done at the county level, not at the local level. And their computer malfunctioned and they wouldn't have the results that night. So by the time we went home election night, uh, I was actually down for a while, but then I was up by about 10 or 15 votes. And we didn't really find out uh, for about three weeks. And then when I finally won, I won by nine votes. So I gave myself the nickname a landslide Dan. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so Dan, our union covers a diverse spectrum. You know, we have working class sheet metal workers, we have bus operators, we have transit operators, we have folks who work on the railroad, you know, all sorts of different crafts. Why is it important to get you know, people from all of these walks of life involved in the political world? Uh, ben, I, I'd answer it in a couple of ways. One, you know, I told you about my first race for Delran Council, where I won by, you know, uh, 10 or 15 votes. You know, at the time, people were saying, you know, geez, that's too bad. Or I said, no, actually, it isn't. As a state legislative director, part of my job was to go around to our locals to encourage our members to register to vote, vote for labor candidates. In other words, candidates, not necessarily that had a labor background, but had shown by their records or had indicated they would support labor on their issues. Well, the response you would get many times from the membership is, uh, my vote doesn't count. And I go, have you got a minute for a quick story? And I tell them about winning a race by 10 or 15 votes. You know, all I had, all I had to do is have nine other people show up and vote the other way. And we're all not having this conversation today. And secondly, you know, what's happened, it, ha it started to happen shortly before I retired. People have grown so cynical about politics because they don't feel that the politicians really have their uh, interest in mind. And, by, and, and the way some of them act, they don't. But if you're there, now, you know, you can, you can help steer that ship. You can help give a perspective of what a working person is going through. Because you know, a lot, a lot of people don't know what a sheet metal worker does. A lot of people, you know, they don't know what a railroad worker does. Uh, about the, you know, the odd hours, uh, uh, the laying away from home, the things that we, you know, put up with to make a living. People think, you know, uh, my vote doesn't count. Well, it did, it did when I first ran for office. And it even did you know, to get the nod to run for freehold, I had to go before the county Democratic Committee. And there were 13 of us that ran for that position. 
it came down to two of us in a runoff election. And I won that election by 10 votes. So Landslide Dan continued when he, when he, became, when he became a county officer. And, and you know what? Some people think you need a college education. We certainly have enough lawyers in government. I think we need people, you know, when we first started this country, we had people from all walks of life. Uh, and, and I think we ought to look to, to going back to that a bit. I think if we have some average Joes and Janes, uh, we might be doing a little bit better. Uh, one, in the perception the public have of us, and also in, in trying to do things to help people. Thank you, Dan. Dan, thank you very much for being here. We really appreciate it. We appreciate everything you've done for this union over the years and for you coming back and giving us some more of your time. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, Paul. Take care. You're listening to the Canadian Union Podcast for Employees. My name is Scott. On May 16th, 2022, I had the opportunity to speak with Rory Gill. Rory is the president of QP Alberta. I first met with him while I was in office of QP Local 37. He managed to get elected into the role of president into QP Local 709. Our paths have crossed a few times throughout the years, and we have disagreed on topics that would be too many to list in an introduction like this. You wouldn't know it to hear this next discussion. We are both in major disbelief over the UCP party leadership. His influence is deep. He is passionate about unions, but he knows what type of atmosphere Alberta is and the province's attitude towards fighting unions and working with them in this difficult duality it's, it's more than two years since uh, the first lockdowns under COVID happened. Everybody became really focused on what was happening and what government policy was. And, and obviously, some of the responses to that, and I'm thinking anti-vaccination movements and, of course, the convoys that we saw in the winter this year, I don't think are the right direction at all. But I think more and more people became really interested and involved in their governance and, and the way their government works. And Jason Kenney failed every test. Like he decided to go to war with the doctors just before the pandemic began. And I remember that I was at a meeting, a number of other labor leaders in Alberta, and we, we got to meet with the uh, then president of the, of the Alberta Medical Association. And she told us at that time that she was really concerned. This was about two weeks before the, you know, everything broke loose with COVID, that the government was more concerned about cutting doctors' pay and reducing the number of doctors in, in the province, which which would be the end result. And this is, so this was their first move, right? Go to war with doctors. They've harassed and belittled workers in the healthcare system ever since. Like they announced they were going to lay off 11,000 people. They delayed that a little bit, but let me tell you, Scott, those uh, layoffs have started. We're seeing uh, services being eroded and, and we're seeing what happens when you take on the healthcare system, and you, and you talk about doing foolish things uh, in privatization and, and cutting services, services being eroded. And that's what we've seen here in Calgary and, and across the province. Lineups in emergency rooms that are totally needless due to doctors leaving, due to burnout. And this government doesn't know how to govern. It doesn't know how to uh, find compromise with people. And yeah, it's uh, the result of that has been a loss of service, but it's also been a really engaged population. And I think the more people look at the policies of the UCP versus the NDP, the choice is going to be pretty clear. And again, back to our earlier point, I'm not uh, certain of it, and there's a lot of work to be done, but I'm confident that we can get a new government soon. I hope so. I'm, I look at a privatization model for, for medical doctors. I, I see 
nothing but trouble. I cannot see how he soft plays this, but at the same time, I know his job is just to make the healthcare system not work and then blame the healthcare system for how it's not working. It, it's, it's such an amazing position to sit in, to, to, to both say that you're supporting them. And then it's, yeah, I, I can't even, I, I, it's hard for me to even look at Jason Kenny or even anyone on the, the UCP side to say, you, you're saying this with a straight face. Like someone has coached you how to not squint a little bit because you it to me it, it sounds as if it's the same play over and over again with just recently with the diabetic insulin pumps big outcry yeah, and cool. all of a sudden everyone's it's fine again we're not going to touch that because we know we're going into an election it's just it's it's yeah i think that reinforce i think it reinforces your point that in the past politicians like jason kenny and governments like the current ucp government have counted on disinterest and have counted on unengaged citizen a citizenry and what you found the the insulin pump was a very good example social media can be pretty destructive i think we know that but it can also be very powerful and uh, it can bring people together especially in times where it's tough to gather and things like that there's a lot of information out there sometimes it gets misused but sometimes it as i say it can be very powerful and can be have some really good effects so people made it very clear very quickly that they didn't think it was a good idea for kids not to have insulin pumps and, and elderly people and then ordinary people who are managing their diabetes. So they've, they've done what they usually do. Well, we're going to pause and figure it out. And if, if I had to bet, I think you probably won't see that policy anytime before any, any election. But they really, they really do float these things. They come up with these policies. And, and you question about how can Kenny do it with a straight face? You know, I said earlier, he's a good organizer. I'll also say, I think he truly believes, you know, in the philosophy that he has spent his entire life. I mean, his entire adult life trying to bring to the fore. Jason Kenney has never, he's never worked in the private sector or the public sector other than being an elected politician at a proper job. He had a advocacy job for the, for the Canadian Taxpayer Federation for a short time. So he believes in what he's doing. He, he doesn't believe in the public sector. He doesn't believe in, in ideas that are just, you know, pretty common sense to you and I, like helping each other, that uh, we have a responsibility to those around us. He doesn't believe in that. He thinks that the individual is paramount, and he thinks that any attempt to bring about public services somehow takes away the rights of the individual, and he's been trying to destroy it. And and you're right. He he understands the electorate in Canada. He understands the Canadians' commitment to helping each other, to public health care and other social programs. So he says he supports them and does everything he can to undermine them. So he's, he's duplicitous in the sense that he won't come out and say what he actually believes, but his beliefs have been consistent since he was a very young person. Thanks a lot, man. It was, it was really fun. Thanks a lot, Scott. And hopefully we'll get to see each other in person before too long. Okay. okay anyway, I'll let you go. Okay. Yes, thank you. No guards, no masters, only helpful advice. It's Red Dead Redemption with Auckland Union representative Justine Sachs. Kia ora Justine, how are you today? Kia ora Rachel, I'm good, how are you? That is good to hear. Um, we're well as well, as well, well as well. Uh, <laughs> well as well can be. Uh, we have got some questions from the listeners about employment stuff and union-y things. So let's get stuck into it. Uh, the first one here is from someone who says, Hey Justine, I've got a terrible manager. They're newish. They haven't taken the time to learn what my team does, brackets, I'm in sales, and has now announced a complete change in how we do things, which doesn't actually benefit the team at all. Do you have any advice on how to approach her about this? No one in my team likes the change and it'll actually make us way slower at our jobs, but she's got her heart set on it. Really? Really don't know what to do here. Please help. 
Ain't that always the way, right? When the new manager comes in and kind of wants to, um, you know, bolster the CV, have a legacy, um, <laughs> and not necessarily engages with staff along the way. It's something that happens quite commonly. Um, it sounds like this is a change process, something we call a management of change. So basically, um, there's a proposal to change how your workplace operates and how you do your work. Um, there's some really good uh, advice actually on employment.gov.nz about this, um, where you can read about like an overview of how workplace change should kind of happen. Um, and a couple of things kind of stand out for me, which is that it doesn't sound like there's been any consultation with the affected employees, which should yeah. be sort of num- the number one thing that kind of happens um, in a process like that. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's that's the employer does have. Um, an obligate, obligation in good faith, as we, we like to call it in, in the biz, um, <laughs> to, consult, to consult with workers when there's um, changes that are going to impact their work or yep. potentially impact their employment. So it's, it's kind of a bit of a red flag to me that if there hasn't been any consultation, though there may have been because maybe that's how you know about it. Um, in terms of um, what you can do, this is a, this is a really hard one because yeah, like in a unionized workplace, you have a lot more scope and power to kind of, um, you know, say this change isn't going to like it, have that consultation, that feedback be more meaningful. Yeah. Um, and that you know, like the employer is more likely to act on it because you can exercise some collective power. So um, it is tough. It's a tough one. I, I would just be very honest. I, I, you know, I would collectively give very similar feedback and be extremely honest about how you don't think this is gonna. I collectively be honest about how mm-hmm. you know this is gonna impact your work. And you know, um, if if they if there is an opportunity for feedback, don't waste that. Don't yeah. um, mince your words. Um, you know best about the work and. Um, you know, it's, it's then on to the onus is on the manager to listen, and, and if this person decides not to, um, you know, I guess you you reap what you sow in, in in some ways, to be honest. But yeah, good um, good uh, good opportunity to join a union because this is the kind of thing that union like unionized workplace it happens less frequently, and when it does happen, you have a lot more say in what's going on, and you can um, stop occasionally really bad plans from going forward. All right. Well, that sounds like some very good advice there. Thank you, Justine. I hope you have a lovely rainy Monday and we'll see you in a fortnight. Yeah, terrible weather. (laughs) (laughs) Kakite. Yeah, take that, the man. Red Dead Redemption with Auckland Union Representative Justine Sachs. You're listening to On Writing, a podcast from the Writers Guild of America East. In each episode, you'll hear from the writers of your favorite films and television series. They'll take you behind the scenes, go deep into the writing and production process, and explain how they got their project from the page to the screen. My name is Allison Herman. I'm a WGAE member who's also a staff writer for The Ringer, where I am the staff television critic. You're about to listen to my conversation with Amy Schumer, the writer, star, director, and producer of Hulu's Life and Beth. And Amy and I talked about how motherhood changed her perspective as a writer, why she loves writing in bed, and the differences between writing a sketch show like Inside Amy Schumer versus a scripted show like Life and Beth. I hope you'll give it a listen. Amy, thank you so much for joining to talk about this show. Thank you for having me on. This is the On Writing podcast, so I was wondering a little bit about just the process of it all. But, you know, you've obviously done 
so many things in your career. You have done stand-up, you have written movies, you have done a sketch show. But if I'm not mistaken, I think this is your first writing credit for scripted television and it's for, you know, your own show. What kind of learning curve goes into just figuring out how to do that? Well, it was sort of like that I let myself off the hook. And this is like the advice I give writers is just, I didn't try to get it perfect right away. I wrote the pilot like there were 18 drafts before I even went in to pitch it. Like your first, my first drafts are, they're bad. <laughs> like they're just bad writing. And then you try to get rid of the bad writing as you improve, hopefully on on what you've written. But I think I tried to just use all of the tools that I had and apply them. Like even though the sketch show wasn't a scripted narrative show, there was still quite a bit of writing. And I'd written this one episode where we did a, the whole episode was parodying 12 Angry Men. And I'd written Trainwreck. So I had like enough narrative experience, but in terms of writing like a half hour television show, I just didn't know how to do that. And I still don't really feel like I know how to do that. I sort of didn't do it, you know, because there's all these rules that I think are useful and helpful, but they can, I think, sometimes also hold you back. And once I see the format of something, you can feel a little taken out of it. So I also really like to hire writers that haven't necessarily worked in that specific medium before. And like on the sketch show, none of us even had final draft on our computers. It was like, you know, we were all figuring it out together. And I think with that comes some authenticity. And then like certainly mistakes. And I just thought, okay, well, this is hopefully the worst I'll ever be at this and just like do my best. But I think if I were to give myself criticism on Life and Beth, it would be that it probably plays a little bit more like a long movie. And it's just because it's, yeah, it's just not in my skill set to write a narrative TV show in the way that we are used to consuming it. I'm always really interested kind of in the tension on this kind of show between being such a personal narrative and an extension of you and your life experiences, but also the fact that TV is so inherently collaborative and involves working with other people. So when it came to, you know, translating your own story into a scripted show, what was it like to kind of work with other people on workshopping what was rooted in your own experience? You know, it's just a testament to how talented they were and dedicated. It was like just a lot of me processing my own life and sharing it and talking about it and wanting other people to share and, you know, taking bits of their own life. I just opened it up like as much of yourself as you want to share, as you're down to share, please, but also respecting people's boundaries. But I wrote a lot on all the episodes is the way it went down and they're were some instances where I was like, you know what, I really, I just need to write that. Are you usually a home writer or was that kind of a break from previous routine for you? I'm a bed writer. <laughs> I really have written most things from right here in the bed, probably mostly because of my back problems, but I'm either standing at a standing desk or, but you know, I'm really, I think part of why people come back and are willing to write with me on different projects is they know how respectful I am of everyone's time. And I don't expect people to sit in the office and write until it's dark out. It's like, whatever your process is, however you write, do that. I write really fast, but I don't expect other people to do that. 
Thank you again for taking the time. This is a really wonderful conversation and I hope it leads more people to watch your show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Of course. All right, take care. All right, bye. On Writing is a production of the Writers Guild of America East. This series was created and is produced by Jason Gordon. Our associate producer and designer is Molly Beer. Tech production and original music by Taylor Bradshaw and Stockboy Creative. You can learn more about the Writers Guild of America East online at wgaeast.org. You can follow the Guild on all social media platforms at wgaeast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us. Thank you for listening and write on. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today and the show notes for the podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. And you can also find them, use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. You can find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs>